name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're there in Judges chapter number 6. And of course, like we've been talking about this morning, we are beginning a, beginning a brand new uh, sermon series entitled Helping People Reach Their Full uh, Potential. And um, I'm very excited about this uh, series. I hope that you will be as well. And of course, uh, this, this morning will serve as kind of an introduction uh, to this sermon series. And just up front, I, w- I want to uh, say this, that I'm gathering a lot of my inspiration for this sermon series. Obviously, I'm going to preach the Word of God to you. And uh, we're going to look at a lot of passages this morning, and over the next several weeks, we're going to look at a lot of scriptures. But a lot of uh, the inspiration and kind of some of the ideas that I'm gathering for this sermon series is uh, coming from a book that I read uh, years ago, and I'm rereading it now again, uh, entitled How to Help People Reach Their Potential. And this was a book written uh, by Dr. Jack Hiles. I actually have a copy of my, my, my book here. And uh, this is a, a book that is really just a series of transcribed lectures that he gave to pastors and uh, that were training for the ministry at Hiles Anderson College years ago. And uh, unfortunately, I can't just preach this book to you uh, because a lot of it is geared towards pastors and won't apply necessarily to you. But some of the ideas and thoughts are coming from that book, and I'll be quoting the book for you. This is the reason I'm letting you know about it. I'll be quoting this book for you um, throughout this series. Um, but this morning, I want to begin. Let me say something about uh, Jack Howells. Obviously, he's one of my heroes, and I, I like him. I don't agree with everything. And if you go out and buy it, run out, because some of you will already on Amazon looking for that book. And um, if you buy the book, just know that I like the book, but I don't recommend everything necessarily in it as, as well. Um, but this morning, I want to preach kind of an introductory sermon um, to this idea of helping people reach their full potential. And I've entitled this morning's sermon, Untapped Potential, Untapped Potential. And what I'd like to do this morning is give you four simple statements to help us get ready uh, for this series and help us understand the, the, the frame of mind for the series and of course, if you're taking notes, and I always encourage you to take notes, on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to uh, take notes. I would love for you to maybe jot some of these statements down. I'd like to just give you just four simple statements this morning, and as we prepare uh, to study this out over the next several weeks. The first statement, if you're taking notes, is this, and they're very simple statements, and, and I wanted this sermon to be very uh, simple as to serve as an introduction Statement number one is this, you have untapped potential. Uh, You have untapped potential. And we're going to look at Judges chapter 6 here in in a minute, but let me just give you some definitions just to help you understand what I'm talking about. The the dictionary defines the word potential as something that is possible as opposed to actual, capable of being or becoming. In the book, Dr. Jack Hiles Uh, defines potential as existing in possibility, capable of development into possibility. And when we're talking about potential, what we're talking about is that which is possible, that which maybe is not yet actual, but is possible. This morning, I'm preaching on the subject of untapped potential. The term untapped 
is defined as not yet used, not yet drawn upon. And I want to speak to you on this idea of potential that you and I have that is not yet used, not yet drawn upon. It's untapped potential. It's not an actuality. It's a possibility. It is something that could be brought into existence. And what I want you to understand and where I want to begin this morning is with this statement that you and I have untapped potential. And the reason that I wanted to begin here in Judges chapter number 6 with this story of Gideon, of course, one of the judges of the children of Israel, is because this story highlights for us that God sees about you and I what you and I do not necessarily see about ourselves. In Judges chapter 6 and verse 11, I'd like you to notice the story here. And I'm not going to be preaching expository uh, through this story this morning. Uh, this is more of a topical series, so we'll be looking at a lot of different passages. And tonight, when we're in Numbers, I'll go verse by verse through the chapter of Numbers chapter number 1, and of course Galatians will be going verse by verse through it as well. In Judges chapter 6 and verse 11, the Bible says this, And there came an angel of the Lord, and sat under an oak, which was an Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abizorite, and his son Gideon. And of course we know, if you're familiar with the book of Judges, we know that Gideon is one of the major characters, one of the major judges who... Uh, some there's many judges in the book of Judges. Some of them we get very uh, small amounts of information, but Gideon is not one of them. We get a lot of information about Gideon. A lot of chapters are dedicated to his life. And here's where we meet Gideon. This is the first time we see Gideon. The Bible says, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the wine press. He threshed wheat by the wine press. Now I want to just highlight for you first of all. And I've highlighted for you this in the past, that it is interesting to me that God, when he's looking for someone to use, he's always looking for someone who's already working. We see this all throughout the Bible. We see Elijah calls Elisha when he is plowing with oxen. We see that Jesus often called his followers when they were at work fishing. They were at work uh, even collecting taxes and things of that nature. It seems like God wants to always highlight for us the fact that when he's looking for someone to use, he's always looking for someone who's already making themselves useful. And here we have Gideon who is threshing wheat. The word thresh, and of course the Bible was written, uh, and the, a lot of the events that happen in the Bible are in the context of an agricultural society. And we necessarily don't have that, uh, so it's good for us. Some of you do. You might have grown up on a farm or something like that. But to thresh wheat means to separate the grain by some means of, in our day, would be mechanical, mechanically beating. But in these days, it would be some sort of beating it um, so that you could separate the grain from the chaff. And this is what Gideon was doing. He was uh, threshing wheat. But I want you to notice what is being highlighted here, though I wanted to highlight for you the fact that he's working, and I appreciate that. What is actually being highlighted by the Word of God here is something a little less honorable. Not the fact that his work is not honorable, but I want you to notice that Gideon threshed wheat, and then we're told, by the wine press. Now, wheat and a wine press would be two different places, two different places of bringing in a harvest. Wheat would be something different that would not be used in a wine press. And we are told here that he's threshing wheat by the wine press, and then we're told why it is that he's doing this to hide it 
from the Midianites. Now, I want to take some time and explain this to you because you have to understand this uh, context to understand the point that I want to bring out to you from this passage. We see Gideon here threshing wheat in a wine press. This was both difficult and humiliating. Notice the Bible tells us that he's doing this to hide it from the Midianites. Wheat was threshed in open spaces, typically on a hilltop, so that as they beat it and as they did this work, the breeze, the wind would blow away the chaff as they beat and threshed the wheat and it flew into the air. The chaff, which was less heavy, would be blown by the wind. The wheat, which was more dense, would fall to the ground. And this is how they would separate the wheat from the chaff. This was often done, obviously, outside, usually done at a high point like a hilltop, usually done on a windy day so that the breeze, so that the wind could blow away the chaff. Wheat was not normally threshed in a sunken place like a wine press. A wine press is where you would bring grapes into a lower, sometimes often like a large basin, or we might think of like a a pond, a dried up pond or a pool where they would bring these grapes in and then they would press on them and step on them to squeeze the juice out and there'd be some sort of a system to get the juice and to drain it out of the grapes. The fact that Gideon is doing this work of threshing wheat, which is usually done at a high place, and he's doing it in a wine press, which is usually located at a low place, is telling us that this was not only difficult work, but it was humiliating. Because of the fact that he was doing this to hide it, we're told, look at the last part of verse 11 again, to hide it from the Midianites. Of course, we know that the Midianites at this place, at this time, are the oppressors of the children of Israel. The children of Israel are being oppressed by the Midianites. They're having to pay tribute, and they're having to pay taxes to the Midianites. And what Gideon is doing is he's threshing this wheat, but he doesn't want the Midianites to know about it. He doesn't want the Midianites to take their part or to take it away from them. He's trying to do it in order so that they could keep it for his family and for his society. So he's doing it in a place where it would be hidden. He's taken the wheat... Uh, and taking it to a wine press. And like I said, this would be difficult because of the fact that there would not be much of a breeze to help him with this. And I don't know what Gideon was doing or how he was doing it. Maybe he was threshing the wheat and just kind of blowing with his mouth. I don't know. But we know that what he was doing was not the best way to do it. And it was kind of a humiliating thing to do because the truth of the matter is that he was scared and he was afraid to thresh wheat, to do something as simple and basic in an agricultural society as to uh, thresh wheat in public because he's doing it to hide it from the Midianites. Now, I say all that to say this, to help you understand the ridiculousness of what the angel says to Gideon in verse number 12. Because in Judges chapter 6 and verse 12, the Bible says this, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, This is the angel of the Lord speaking to Gideon. Gideon is down in, the, in a wine press, threshing wheat down in a low basin. The angel of the Lord appears and said unto him, um, Notice there in verse 12, The Lord is with thee. And then he says this to Gideon, Thou mighty man of valor. And when I read those words, I initially have to ask myself, are you being sarcastic? 
Are you insulting Gideon? I mean, get the picture. Here we have a young man who's threshing wheat, praise the Lord for that, but doing it in a location that normally would not be done, probably at a time where it normally would not be done, trying to do it in a secret because of the fact, why is he doing this? Why is he working in a basin? Why is he working in a wine press? Why is he doing this maybe possibly by himself? Why is he doing it at a time that maybe would not normally be done and in a place where it would not normally be done in order to hide it from the Midianites? He's doing it because he's scared. He's doing it because he's afraid. He's doing it because he's fearful, because he is weak, because there are people out there who are stronger and mightier than him. And then the angel shows up and says, the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And I would submit to you this morning that Gideon threshing wheat secretly in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites does not seem like the acts of a mighty man of valor. And you might ask yourself, and you might think to yourself, is this angel sent down simply to pick on Gideon? Is he sent down simply to insult Gideon? And I would say to you that the reason for this address, the reason for this greeting is not nefarious. It was not an insult. The answer is found in this, that God sees about you and God sees about me and God see us all about Gideon what Gideon did not see about himself see the fact that he's being addressed as a mighty man of valor does not rest on the actuality of Gideon's actual life at this point but it rests upon the untapped potential that Gideon had Gideon had the potential, and we will see, and you will see if you continue reading the book of Judges, that he really did become a mighty man of valor. But God calls him that even when he was a weak, scared, frightened, not man of valor. God calls him that because of the fact that God sees about Gideon what Gideon could not see about himself. And God sees about you. And God sees about me. What, me, what we possibly cannot see about ourselves. I want you to notice Gideon's response to this, verse 13. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord. Now the angel just got done saying, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. He addressed him and he said, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. It's interesting to me that Gideon begins to attack the first statement, The Lord is with me doesn't even address the second statement because the second statement is so absurd. It doesn't even uh, require any sort of statement being made towards it. But Gideon simply rests upon this, verse 13. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us. Because you're telling me the Lord is with me. You're calling me a mighty man of valor. I'm I'm down here hiding, beating this thresh and blowing it with my mouth possibly kind of humiliated and you're telling me the Lord is with me and that I'm a mighty man of valor and Gideon says that the Lord be with us why then is all this befallen us and where be all the miracles which our fathers told us of I want you to notice that Gideon was not only at this point acting cowardly but he was also critical 
I mean, he says, really? The Lord is with us? Then why then is all this befallen us? And where be all the miracles which our fathers told us of? He said, I've heard all these miracles about God parting the Red Sea and bringing the children of Israel and the plagues of Egypt and parting the Jordan and the conquerings of the land. He said, where are all these miracles? The, 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 the tower, uh, the, the walls of Jericho and all these things. He said, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Verse 14. And the Lord looked upon him and said, notice that he brings his attention back, not to what Gideon is, but what he can be. Go in this thy might. And you got to ask the question, what might? What are you talking about? I'm a mighty man of valor. You want me to go in my might? What might? He tells him, go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hands of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold. Now I want you to notice what Gideon sees about himself. I want you to notice who Gideon believes he is at this time. He says, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least of my father's house. He said, we are the poorest family, and I'm the worst of, of us all. And the Lord said unto him, Notice the phrase, surely I will be with thee. Thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. I want you to understand that when we begin to study this idea of developing your potential, you and I need to begin with this understanding. This is not going to be some sort of a a self-help seminar where I'm going to teach you to go stand in front of a mirror and tell yourself, you're amazing, you're great, you're good looking. It is true that you and I have potential. And it is true that you and I can accomplish great things. But only as we connect ourselves to God. And only as we rely on God. And only as we allow ourselves to be connected with God. He says, surely I will be with thee. And it is that reason that the angel can confidently say to Gideon, thou mighty man of valor, go in this thy might. I'd like you to keep your place right there in Judges, if you would. Keep your finger there in Judges. And go with me to the New Testament book of Philippians. Philippians chapter number 3. Philippians chapter number 3. In the New Testament, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter number 3. And I realize that you're keeping your place in Judges, and I appreciate that, but I'd also like you to keep your place in Philippians if you would. Maybe put a ribbon or a bookmark or a bulletin or something there, because we're going to leave Philippians and we're going to come back to it. In fact, we're going to come back to it towards the end of the sermon. So if you're wondering when this is about to be done, when I tell you to go back to Philippians, that'll give you an indication that we are towards the end of my outline. I don't know if that helps you in any way, but I think some of you might. Philippians chapter 3. I want you to understand that God sees about you what you and I do not see about ourselves. But some of you don't have that problem. Some of you are what we call arrogant, or what the Bible calls proud. And if you're sitting here this morning and saying, I don't need this sermon series. I'm God's gift to everyone. I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. Let me just say this to you. It doesn't matter how far along you are, you still have more to go. In Philippians chapter 3, we find the Apostle Paul speaking, who is 
other than, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, arguably the greatest man who ever lived. I would definitely say the greatest church planner, soul winner, evangelist, missionary, whatever you want to call him, and probably the most successful man who ever walked this earth, other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Philippians 3 and verse 12, this great man, who in all honesty could have referred to himself as a mighty man of valor, and no one would have batted an eye at that, he says these words, not as though I had already attained. You and I would say it this way, I've not yet arrived. Paul, arguably one of the, I mean, one of the greatest Christians who ever lived, arguably the greatest Christian who ever lived, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, says, I have not already attained. I have not arrived. Notice what he said in his next statement. He says, either were already perfect. And the word perfect there means complete or whole. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I'm not done. I'm not done growing. I'm not done learning. I'm not done getting better. Paul is telling us in his words here, as he says, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. What he's saying is, I have untapped potential. He says, but I follow after. He says, I'm working at it. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. And then in verses 13 and 14, he makes the famous uh, uh, statements that are obviously often quoted from Philippians when he says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. He He says, I have a goal. By the way, you say, what is his goal? His goal is God. His goal is Christ. He says, I follow after that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. He says, I have a goal to try to be everything that Christ Jesus wants me to be. And he says, for that reason, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Some of you need to underline that in your Bible. Some of you will not be benefited by the sermon series And you could be, you could develop your untapped potential, you could develop your potential in your life, but you're being dragged down by the past. And I would submit to you that the Apostle Paul had a lot of past too. We won't take the time to look at it, we'll see some of it in Galatians, but he persecuted the church. He put the first Christian martyr to death. There was a lot in his past that he regretted, a lot of guilt that he carried. But he tells us, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. And let me just say to you, if you've got something in your past that you regret, that you're ashamed of, that you're embarrassed about, first of all, know this, everyone does. Secondly, know this, you might not want to give yourself the permission to forget those things which are behind, but you can give yourself the permission to forget those things which are behind if you decide to actively get better. See, he he didn't just say forgetting those things which are behind. He said forgetting those things which are behind, he says, and reaching forth, developing the potential that I have unto those things which are before And then, of course, he says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So it doesn't matter how far along you are, you still have more to go. 
And if you think, well, I don't have much to offer, I would just say to you that God may be looking down at you and calling you something that you would not call yourself. Maybe a mighty man of valor. Not because of your actuality, but because of the potential that you have in your life. So I said number one this morning, you have untapped potential. Let me give you the second statement. And if you would, I'd like you to go to the book of 1 Samuel. If you kept your place in Judges, remember I asked you to keep your place, your finger in Judges. Keep your place in Philippians as well, please, because we're going to come back to it. But if you kept your finger in the book of Judges, right after Judges, you have the book of Ruth. And right after Ruth, you have the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 22, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. Number one, you have, if you're taking notes this morning, you have untapped potential. Here's the second statement. Four simple statements. I'll try to move through them faster than I did the first one. The first statement is this, you have untapped potential. The second statement is this, you can develop your untapped potential. You can develop your untapped potential. Now I'm going to give you an example from the Bible, which is probably one of my favorite examples of the Bible whenever we see this in the Bible. And you've heard this before from me because I, I like it. It encourages me. But I want you to notice that in 1 Samuel 22 and verse 1, we have David. Remember David, he killed Goliath. This is before he becomes King David. And actually, as a result of Saul's envy, he is having to run away from home. He's being hunted down by Saul. In verse 1, 1 Samuel 22 and verse 1, we read this. David therefore departed thence and escaped. Remember, he's running from Saul to the cave of Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down hither to him. I want you to notice that David, who's held a position in Jerusalem who's held a position even politically in, in the military, is now having to run as a fugitive. He's running away. He departed thence and escaped. When his family heard of it, they went down hither to him, but they were not the only ones that went to him. Verse 2, and everyone that, I just want you to notice it. I know I've showed it to you in the past, but I want you to see it again. And everyone that, number one, was in distress. And everyone that, number two, was in debt. And everyone that, number three, was discontented. You see how the Bible alliterates things? That's why I like to do it. <laughs> everyone that was in distress, everyone that was in debt, everyone that was discontented, gathered themselves unto him and became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. David has a little army here with him, about 400 men, and I would call these David's ragtag men. Because there is nothing impressive about this group. It is a ragtag group. They are ragged, they are shabby, they are disorganized, and they are disorderly. I mean, if you were going to be given an, an, an army, is this what you would want? 400 men who the Bible tells us are in distress, are in debt, and are discontented. These guys, if I may say it, are losers. They're not succeeding in life. Things are not going well in life for them. And they see David running off into the wilderness, hiding from his problems, and they say, let's go with him. They were in distress, and they were in debt, and they were discontented. Now here's what's interesting to me. And I know that some of you already know the punchline. You've heard me use this example in the past, but I want you to see it again. If you go to 2 Samuel chapter 23, 
you're there in 1 Samuel, just go over to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 23. What you find is that David as king is surrounded by an elite fighting force. In fact, probably the greatest elite fighting force of the ancient world. In the Bible, they are known as David's mighty men. 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 8, the Bible says this, These be the names of the mighty men whom David had. The Tachmanite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains, the same was Adino, the Esnite. Look how impressive these men are. He lift up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. This guy killed 800 people. Verse 9, in a battle. Verse 9. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines they were, that were gathered together to battle, and the men of Israel were gone away. He arose, verse, 20, verse 10, and smote the Philistines until, he ha- until his hand was weary and his hand clave unto the sword. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to spoil. Verse 11, and after him, here we have, actually, let me just make a comment. Here we have a man who fought so valiantly that once he was done fighting, his hand claved to the sword. He couldn't even get the sword out of his hand. And the Lord wrought a great victory. And by the way, this was one of the men that went down with David into the camp of the Philistines as well. He was someone that would be with David, and he was a very brave man. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day. And the people returned not to help, but only after the battle was done, after him only to spoil, to get all the goods of the people that he killed. Verse 11. And after him was Shema, the son of Aji, a Herorite. The Philistines were gathered together into a troop where was a piece of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defeated it and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. And we could go on and on and continue to read. We won't do that. I think you get the point. But I want you to understand that these were impressive men. And obviously, I've preached sermons on David's mighty men in the past. I'm not going to do that, but there's some spiritual applications here. Of course, Adino is fighting one man against 800, and that pictures for us that we should be willing to stand with God against the world. If God before us, who can be against us? We see here this other warrior who his hand was weary and his hand clave unto the sword. And we know that for those of us engaged in spiritual warfare as New Testament Christians, the sword of the Spirit is, a, is the Word of God, and it would uh, behoove all of us to have our hands cleave unto the Word of God. Amen. And then, of course, we see this Shema, the son of Aji, who I think it's comical, a piece of ground, the Bible tells us, he, the, they, they, they gathered together into a troop where was a piece of ground full of lentils and the people fled in the Philistines, but he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it. And here we see a picture of a man who drew a line in the sand and said, no, it's only, it's only a piece of ground full of lentils, but you're not taking it. I will stand here. I will fight for it. I will defend it. These are the types of men we need. And we see these mighty men, these impressive men, these powerful men. And you ask the question, when you get to David, you, you, you see David as king, and you want to ask him the question, David, where did you find these mighty men? 
Where did you gather these elite warriors from? I mean, any king would want to have men like these in his army. Any king would want to have warriors like this in his military. Where did you find these elite warriors? And the answer to the question is not that he found them. It's not that he hired them. It's not that he brought them. The answer to the question is that he developed them. The same ragtag group that came to him out in the wilderness and they were distressed and they were in debt and they were discontented are the same group that we see later on. These mighty men, these warriors for God. Why? Because your untapped potential can be developed. We see David developing these men. We see him training them and instructing them and making them the greatest warriors of the ancient world and developing their untapped potential. Go to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. You open your Bible just right in the center. You're more than likely fond of the book of Psalms. Do me a favor. Keep your finger right there in 2 Samuel. Keep your finger in 2 Samuel, and you go to Psalm 45. Keep your finger in 2 Samuel, and then go to Psalm 45 right in the center. Let me say to those of you who would like to be in leadership one day, and it doesn't matter what kind of leadership it is, whether it's in business or simply being a husband or a father or a pastor, whatever it is, you do not find great followers, you develop great followers. You don't, you know, sometimes people say to me, oh, well, I want to be a pastor, you know, as I travel, the Lord allows me to preach in different places, often people, and I understand their heart, they're complimenting. One day I'd like to pastor a church, I hope God gives me a church like Verity, and you guys have a hundred soul winners, and you've done this, and you've done that. How, how can I get that? And I think, you don't, you don't, you don't get that not given to you you develop that you want 100 soul winners you develop 100 soul winners you preach on soul winning you teach on soul winning you write a soul winning seminar do you understand what I'm saying you instruct soul winners I'm just saying that you develop the potential of the people that God has entrusted you with and it's not just it's not just pastoral any area of leadership. Look at Psalm 45, verse 16. Psalm 45, 16. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children. I just want you to notice this little phrase in Psalm 45, 16. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children. Here God is speaking about the children as opposed to the fathers. But here's what he's telling the fathers about the children. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children. Notice what he says. Whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. It's interesting to me that the Bible says that fathers and mothers have the opportunity to develop their children to be princes, to be renowned, to be leaders, to be the principal ones, the first ones. You have the power, Dad. You have the power, Mom, to develop the untapped potential in your children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. So you can develop your untapped potential, and as a leader, you can develop the untapped potential of those you follow. Oh, excuse me, of those who follow you. Go to 2 Kings, if you would. 2 Kings chapter 13. Remember, you're in 2 Samuel. If you kept your place in 2 Samuel, right after 2 Samuel, you have 1 Kings, and right after 1 Kings, you have 2 Kings. 2 Samuel 
1 Kings, 2 Kings. You have untapped potential and you can develop your untapped potential. I've used a story before, years ago. I remember having a conversation with my friend, Pastor Steve Anderson from Faithful Word in Tempe, Arizona. And we were having this conversation about, this was many years ago, our church had just started. I mean, we were maybe, I don't know, one or two years into it. And of course, we started Verity Baptist Church. My wife and I started this church in our living room. We started with a handful of people. And some of these people were mature, very few of them, but some of them were mature Christians, and we appreciate them. Obviously, my family was there. Brother Ray and Miss Denise Anderson were there, and we appreciate that. But in those early days, the, the first group of people that we began to reach was what you might call a ragtag group. And I remember in those early days, we might have 20 people show up for church on Sunday, but if 20 people showed up for church on Sunday, they only showed up for church on Sunday because my wife and I went to pick them up. Uh, because the vast majority of our church people didn't have vehicles. I remember thinking to myself, I remember my wife and I praying, just we were praying, Lord, one day it'd be nice if we could reach someone. I'm not talking about people that, that started with us. I'm talking about the people we were reaching, knocking doors, getting saved. I remember one of our prayers was, Lord, it would be nice if one day we could reach someone who had a license, <laughs> who could drive themselves, who we wouldn't have to go out and pick them up for church on Sunday. And, and it was kind of like that. And I remember having this conversation with Pastor Anderson, and of course he was several years ahead of us in his ministry, and he had a similar experience when he began the church. And he, in an attempt to encourage me, began to tell me a story that he was told by a pastor when he was having a similar conversation with another pastor in his early days. And this was a pastor in Southern California. He's no longer pastoring, but he was a very successful man. And he was telling me the story about how this pastor was telling him the story about how he and his wife had started their church as well, and they had the same experience at the beginning. And by the way, our people are just as ghetto now. <laughs> you just dress a little nicer, and you've got nicer cars, but don't let them fool you. But he, he was telling me the story about how this pastor was telling him how him and his wife were laying in bed on a Sunday night after church one day, and they were having this conversation also about, you know, whatever, and his wife had looked over, and she looked over at this pastor and, and her husband, and, and, and she said to him, do you think that there'll ever be a time when somebody normal comes to our church? <laughs> and the pastor looked over at his wife and said to her what he told Pastor Anderson when he was having this conversation, and Pastor Anderson said to me when I was having this conversation, and the words are this, we have to make them normal. <laughs> and honestly, the reason that I preach sermon series like this is because these, this is my attempt to help make you normal. <laughs> because you have untapped potential that God wants to utilize. Inside of you and inside of me, there is a spiritual elite warrior right now we might be distressed and discontented and in debt but you can develop your untapped potential so I said number one you have untapped potential number two you can develop your untapped potential number three let me give you a third statement here's statement number three you can waste your untapped potential 
In 2 Kings chapter 13 and verse 14, we have a story of Elisha, the prophet, who is now ready to die. 2 Kings 13, 14, the Bible says, Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O oh my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. I want you to notice that little phrase that Joash, the king, says to Elisha. You might just read through that and not give any thought to it. But that is a very impactful phrase because of the fact that he is quoting Elisha. If you remember, Elisha was the servant of Elijah. Elisha ministered unto Elijah, and he poured water, the Bible tells us, upon the hands of Elijah, meaning he was his servant. And Elisha, before Elijah went and left, we know he was caught up into heaven, Elijah offered Elisha, what would you like me to do? And Elisha made a big request. He said, I want a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah said to Elisha, if you see me when I'm taken up, you will get a double portion of my spirit. And if you know the story, Elisha stuck with him, and they stuck together, and Elisha was there when Elijah was caught up into heaven. And as Elijah was caught up into heaven, and as Elijah dropped the mantle, which Elisha picked up, which was a, 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 a picture or representation of the fact that Elisha was grabbing the baton from Elisha and going to be the second generation that would continue the ministry, the words that Elisha said to Elijah right before Elisha got a double portion of the spirit of Elijah was, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. So now we have Joash at the death of Elisha saying, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof in a sort of way trying to say, Do for me what Elijah did for you. And Elisha picks up on this. Because in verse 15, the Bible says this, And Elisha said unto him, I want you to notice the instructions given here by Elisha. Elisha said unto him, unto Joash the king of Israel, Take bow and arrows. Notice the instructions. Simple and direct. Take bow and arrows. And the Bible says, And he took unto him bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrows of the Lord's deliverance and the arrows of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou hast consumed them. And he said, take the arrows, and he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, smite upon the ground. I want you to notice that Joash says to Elisha, oh my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof, which was a poetic way of him saying, do for me what Elijah did for you. And Elisha, of course, picks up on this and he says, okay, you want a double portion of my spirit? You want to be successful in life? You want, to, you want me to help you untap your potential? He begins to instruct him. Notice very carefully. He says, take bow and arrow, verse 15, and he took unto him bow and arrow. He says, verse 16, put thine hand upon the bow, and he put his hand upon it. He says, verse 17, open the windows eastward, and he opened it. He said, shoot, and he shot. He said, take the arrows, and he took them. I mean, he's giving them step-by-step -step instructions. 
He even helps him as much as possible. Look at verse 16 again, the last part of verse 16. And Elisha put his hand upon the king's hand. I want you to understand something. You young people, you're a teenager, you employees, you work for someone, you church members, by God's grace, you have a pastor. Those of us in leadership can instruct you and instruct you and instruct you. We can tell you step by step by step, take the bow and arrows, put thine hand upon the bow, open the window eastward, shoot. I mean, isn't it pretty? I mean, it's, 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 he's just instructing him. But there's going to have to come a point where you actually step up and do something yourself. Because he tells him, take bow and arrow, put thine hand, and the Bible says, and he took, uh, took unto him the bow and arrows, put thine hand upon the bow, and he put his hand upon it. And he says, open the window eastward, and he opened it, shoot, and he shot, take the arrows, and he took them. But then he said unto the king of Israel, smite, verse 18, smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed. He told him, take the arrows, and I want you to smite them, stomp on them. He said, stomp on them, break them. And the Bible says that he smote thrice. One, two, three, and then he stopped. Verse 18. Excuse, excuse me, verse 19. And the man of God was wroth with him. And he said, thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then hast thou smitten Syria till thou hast consumed it, whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. It's interesting to me that when he told him, take bow and arrows, he took bow and arrows. When he told him, put thine hand upon the bow, he put his hand upon the bow. When he told him to open the window eastward, he opened the window eastward. When he told him to shoot, he shot. When he told him to take the arrows, he took the arrows. But when he told him, when he said, okay, let's see if this guy's been paying attention, smite upon the ground. He doesn't tell him how many times. He said, let's just see what he'll do. Then he drops the ball. Then he just does it three times. And then the man of God is frustrated. He says, why'd you do it three times? He said, thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then hast thou smitten Syria till thou hast consumed it, whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. And here's the point that I want you to understand. Is that life is a series of opportunities. You want to know what the formula to success is? Preparation plus opportunities will equal success. Now, you will get the opportunities, whether you like it or not. They're going to come. I won't have you turn there, but in Ecclesiastes, we have a verse that tells us, time and chance happeneth to them all. You will have opportunities in your life to make good decisions, to make right decisions, to make decisions that are impact eternity. But simply having the opportunities does not say or mean that you will be successful because you have to be ready for those opportunities when they arise this is why i'm often telling single people single people always want to talk about i'm looking for mr right i'm looking for mrs right i'm looking for the right person i'm looking for the right person and i understand that you need to be looking for the right person but you know what you should actually be concerned with is making sure that you're the right person amen Making sure that when you meet the right person and you meet God's will for your life, you're actually prepared and ready to meet God's will. 
I often tell young people, hey, you're worried about finding the right person, but what you should be worried about is becoming the person that the person that you're looking for is looking for. Because success is when preparation meets opportunity. And failure is when a lack of preparation meets opportunity. Last week, I took my sons and some of the guys went to a baseball game. I think baseball's on my mind. Watch the Giants play the Dodgers. By some miracle, the Giants won. <laughs> I think it's because the man of God was there. <laughs> but I was thinking about baseball. I grew up playing baseball. And you know, every time somebody gets up to bat, there's an opportunity there. You have an opportunity. The ball is going to be thrown, and you're going to have an opportunity to possibly hit that ball, maybe hit a RBI or a home run or get on base or do something. But simply because you get up there does not mean that you're going to do anything. You stand there with a bat, but if those balls come down and you don't swing at them. See, it's not just opportunity. It's preparation. It's being ready to meet the opportunity when it comes. It's being ready to hit that ball when it comes down that plate. And please understand me. And I hope that some of you will get this. You will not just have a good marriage just because you're married. You will not raise godly children simply because you have children. You will not be successful in life simply because you are alive. Life is a series of opportunities. Opportunities for you to hit the ball and hit a home run and hit a grand slam. But you're never going to hit it if you don't prepare. Uh, Success is meant in preparation when you prepare for the opportunities that are coming. And some of you are going to strike out with your children, and some of you are striking out in marriage, and some of you are going to strike out with your health and with your finances and with every other area in life is because you don't think you have to prepare. You don't think that life, you don't understand that every day is an opportunity. Every day I wake up and I have an opportunity to be a good husband to the wife that God has given me, to be a good father to the children that God has given me, to be a good pastor to the church members God has given me. And I have to be ready to meet that opportunity. And just because you have an Elisha telling you, take bow and arrow, put thine hand upon the bow, open the windows eastward, shoot, take the arrows, just because you have somebody telling you what to do, at some point, you're going to have to wake up and swing the bat. Preparation plus opportunity equals success. Here's a question I have for you. And please don't answer it out loud. What are you doing with the opportunities that you are given? I'm not, look, I I get one shot at marriage if I want to be right with God. I'm not picking on you if you're divorced and and that was in your past. I'm not picking on you. But you know what? If you're married now, that's that's your one shot. Work at it. The Lord has blessed me with six children. I get one shot at raising those kids. Look, life is but a vapor. It appears for a little time and then vanishes away. I get one shot at this thing called life. And I want to try to develop as much of the potential that God has given me as possible. 
But you will never do that if you do not understand that it is possible to waste your potential. It is, it is possible to waste opportunities. It is possible to walk up to that plate not having prepared, not having practiced, and stand there and strike out. So I said number one, you have untapped potential. Go to Matthew if you would. We're going to finish up. We're going to be done in five minutes. Lord willing, five minutes. See if I can untap this potential. Matthew 25, first book in the New Testament should be fairly easy to find. I said, number one, you have untapped potential. Number two, you can develop your untapped potential. Number three, you can waste your untapped potential. I told you these were simple statements. Last statement, simple statement. Number four, you will be held accountable for your untapped potential. It's not just that, okay, well, I'll just ruin my life and that's it. No, no, no. God expects you to fulfill your potential. In Matthew 25, we have a famous parable of the talents. And I'm not going to preach on this. I could preach a whole sermon on this. I'm not going to. I'll just quickly point out some things to you. Matthew 25, verse 14, the Bible says, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. What were his goods? Verse 15, And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. Let me just quickly say this. You can jot this down if you'd like. Every one of God's servants receives goods or talents. Every one of God's servants receives resources. These talents in this story are things such as money, but it's not just money. Time, influence, ability, opportunities. These are resources that God has given to you. Everyone, we see it here. He called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. Every one of God's servants receives goods or talents or resources from God. Hey, young man, you have been given resources from God. But the second thing that I like you to notice is that not everyone is given the same amount of talents. Look at verse 15 again. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To every man according to his several ability, and straightway and straight took his journey. Not everyone is given the same amount of talents. Not everyone starts off with the same amount of money, or maybe even the same amount of time, or influence, or ability, or opportunities. Letter C. You are not expected to produce the same amount with your talents as others produce with theirs. This is one thing that's highlighted in the story, verse 16. Then he that had received five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. Skip down to verse 20. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee rule over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. But notice, compare it in contrast to the next guy, verse 22. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou been faithful over a few things, I'll make thee rule over many things, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Why don't you notice that the guy with five talents and the guy with two talents who had uh, brought five more talents and two more talents were both given the same uh, 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 admonition, the same uh, appreciation, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I want you to understand this, you are not expected to produce the same amount with your talents as others produce with theirs. We are not in competition with each other. 
I am not running. The, the, the race that is set before us is not a foot race, me against you, and let's see who does best. That is not what the Christian life is about. You are not expected to produce the same amount with your talents as others produce with theirs because of the fact that there are some people that have received more talents. Let's just be honest. Some people have more opportunity. Now, there are some of us who have the, our one talent, and we're doing the best we can with the one talent we've got. But there are others who have been given more talents and more opportunity and more abilities. And here's the honest truth. Any kid that is born in this church and has been raised in this church, you've been given a handful of opportunities. Amen. And often more opportunities than your own parents had. So don't grow up and become this jerk who says, well, I'm doing better than my parents. You're lucky your parents brought you here. It's your, it's, it's your, you say, my parents were this, my parents were that. Your parents got you saved and brought you to this church. You should appreciate them and love them for it. Amen. You're not expected to produce the same amount with your talents as others produce with theirs. But let me just say this. You are expected to produce something with the talents you've been given. Look at our example of the untapped potential. Verse 18, Matthew 25, 18. But he that had received one talent went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. Verse 24, then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast, that is thine. He says, I'm not giving you anything more. I'm just giving you what you gave me back. What you gave me, I'm giving it back. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put thy, my money in, uh, to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. He said you could have at least put it into a savings account and earned something. And here's all I'm saying. Is you will be held accountable for your untapped potential. You are not expected to produce what other people are producing. You should not live. In fact, it is a very unhealthy life. This is why I'm so irritated oftentimes by the social media culture that we have. It is a very unhealthy life to live your life constantly comparing yourselves to others. The Bible says it is not wise. You are not expected to produce what others are producing, but you are expected to produce something. I'd like you to go to Ephesians, and we're going to be done. We'll be done right now. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. If you don't want to turn there, you can look at your bulletin. It's the, ad, it's the verse in the beginning, of, in the front of the bulletin. Ephesians 3. If you kept your place in Philippians, remember I told you when we got to Philippians? If you kept your place in Philippians, uh, right before Philippians is the book of Ephesians, all right? Right before Philippians, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Let me read to you a quote from the book, Jack Hiles, and then we'll read this verse and be done. Here's what Dr. Jack Howell said. He said, God does not endow all of us with the same gifts and talents. So he does not expect any of us to compete with the rest of us, but rather to develop in himself his gifts and his talents to their potential in him. Ephesians 3 and verse 20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. See, Gideon... Remember Gideon? He says, my tribe is the poorest tribe, and I'm the least in this tribe. You're calling me a mighty man of valor. I'm threshing wheat in a wine press. Uh, I, it's cowardly. I'm hiding. But what Gideon did not realize 
is that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, no, don't miss it. Look at it. According to the power that worketh in us. I got to ask you, are you fulfilling your full potential? Are you fulfilling your full redemptive potential as a Christian, as a church member, as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a wife, as a mother, as a daughter, as an employee, an employer? If you're not, and I would wager, though I do not gamble, that you're not, because none of us are fulfilling our full potential. I want to encourage you to join us over the next several weeks as we study from the Bible how it is that you and I can develop and how we can help others develop their full potential. For God's glory. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Bible. Lord, I pray you'd help us. pray you'd help us to develop our potential, develop the potential of our children and those that follow us. And Lord, I pray that all of this will be done to your honor and to your glory. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to have Brother Matt.